0: If you would, take your Bibles, please, and open to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Tom will be speaking next Sunday. Uh, He and I will be back, but uh, i ask Tom to speak. We've been considering the matter of time and seeking to create a theology of time. And a key to this is for us to recognize that time is a creation, something created by God. And as such, it is to be received as gift. What God has created, space and time, are in fact his gifts to us. They are to be received with thanksgiving. But as with other aspects of creation, um, when they are not recognized as gift from the creator, they tend to be distorted or abused or misused. So we've seen we live in a culture in which the present is privileged over the past and the future as well. The future either being imagined as a utopian paradise on earth or the opposite, a dystopian. That's uh, you know the stuff of movies and of TV series. But as we saw last week, we need to understand that the past, the present, and the future should never be divided. We do that to help us think you know spatially you know that, okay temporally that you know this is the past we are here in the present what is to come is the future okay but as Os Guinness writes in his book carpe diem redeemed they are one before god they are one and indivisible they are far more intertwined and omnipresent in our lives than we often realize yes there is a sense in which the past is no longer and the future is not yet here. But we have to be careful that we don't make these, these, these separations that I think are not helpful in our thinking. As one writer has noted, the past may, no, may, no, may be no longer present. Or, let me start over. The past may be no longer, but it is still present. And the future is not yet, but it is already present whether through our hopes, visions, excitement, anxieties, or fears. As God's people, we should appreciate equally, appropriately, the past, the present, and the future. And we need to guard our relationship to each of these. But what we find and what we saw last week is a distortion of all three among non-believers and believers as well. So to review briefly the distortion of the past, you know, there's a huge difference with, between living with the past and living in the past. The first one is positive and gives life, living with the past. The other one is just nostalgia, sentimentality, and can be life-threatening. Again, to quote Os Guinness, today a key in which modern people distort the past is through victimhood and hate. You see, Around the 17th century, philosophers, thinkers began to think that humanity was on this course, this ever upward trajectory, that things were just going to get better and better and better. But since that time, you know, look at the 20th century in particular, there has been great evil, great injustice and suffering, sometimes on a small scale and other times on a global scale. Um, the genocides, the famines, the man-made famines in which millions and millions have died. We can't be untouched by this. We, can't, we must be moved, I think. As the Father has compassion, we should as well for those who are held captive, those who are oppressed, and those who, in fact, even die as a result of human injustice. The world is overwhelmed with those who are suffering And their blood cries out to heaven. But, having said that, to be a victim, to respond through victimhood, or to play the victim card are all different things. You see, what we find in our culture today is that people want to present themselves, portray themselves as victims. And as a result, they end up paralyzing themselves or they go, I think that's a sort of a passive response. The active response is they are filled with hate, hate, hatred, and they strike out with it. See, those who see themselves as victim look at the past for evidence of them being victims. This is why I'm a victim, because of all these terrible things that have happened in the past. And as a result, they are prisoners of the past. Even though they're living in the present, they define themselves by the past. They define themselves as victims. And oftentimes respond in hate. I said last week, and I want to make it clear again today, horrible, horrible things have happened to people. Terrible things have been done to them. And the question is, are you going to be a victim and just that's how you're going to think of yourself? Are you going to respond in hatred? This is not the biblical way. The answer is, in fact, forgiveness. That we are to forgive those who have done wrong against us. If you play the victim card and live filled with hatred, you keep the past alive with all its poison. Instead of saying, I forgive, and you let that go, it's something that you keep alive. Forgiveness, however, frees the victim to live a life of freedom and cuts off hatred from the past forever. I was watching a a YouTube video this week and looking at the comments, which I don't normally do, but I did, and someone wrote this Forgiveness is a healing act, and most, most importantly, it is a selfish act. That got my attention. You forgive because it lessens the burden you carry. When you forgive, it literally allows you to lay down the load of revenge you carry both mentally and physically. The poison of the past doesn't live with you now. You forgive. I think we need to recognize that forgiveness, in a sense cuts through the distortion of the past and allows us to th- see things more clearly we, we, I mentioned last week the story of Joseph that he tells his brothers you, you meant to do me harm they absolutely did but he was able to see that in fact God was able to use this for the preserving of his family in my reading this week I came across there's a Japanese art form called kintsugi or kintsukuroi I don't know if you're familiar with this. It is the repairing of broken pottery. The pieces are brought together and they are mended with layers of lacquer, which have either silver, gold, or platinum sprinkled in them, powdered forms. And so what ends up happening is you have, let's say a bowl that has been broken. And now you see all these lines where the lacquer has brought the pieces together and there may be gold, silver, or platinum. As a philosophy, uh, the thinking is it treats the breakage the breakage and repair as part of the history of the object rather than something to disguise. They're not trying to make it look like it used to look. They recognize something happened to this piece of pottery, but now it has been repaired. And we want you to know it's been repaired by pointing out what the gold particular If you go online, you can see pictures of this. It it stands out. There's no question. They're not disguising it. Something bad has happened, but it has been repaired. As a philosophy, Kintsugi can be seen to have similarities to the Japanese philosophy of Wabi Sabi. That is, embracing the flawed or imperfect. It is, in fact, embracing the past without taking on its poison and its continuing brokenness. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay. I would say broken jars of clay. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That is to say the light of God shines through the cracks in us. I also mentioned at the end of the sermon last week, for those of you who weren't here, since Titus quoted from Snoop Dogg, I would quote from Pearl Jam in a song by Eddie Vedder and Mike McCready called Present Tense. You can spend your time alone redigesting past regrets, or you can come to terms and realize you're the only one who can forgive yourself. makes much more sense to live in the present tense. This is a chorus of sorts because that comes around, but the second time that uh, Eddie Better sings it, he says, you can spend your time alone redigesting past regrets, or you can come to terms and realize you're the only one who cannot forgive yourself. The forgiveness of others for what they have done to us in the past is the key to not distorting the past. It gets rid of the poison. But forgiving ourselves, For the stupid, the crazy, the insane things we have done. When we look back, we're like, what was I thinking? And instead of forgiving ourselves and say, by the grace of God, I have been forgiven. We carry that with us. We, in fact, distort the past. It's a very unhealthy view of the past. Secondly, and more briefly, there is a distortion of the present. Today, we live in a time in which the present is privileged over the past and over the future at the expense of the past and the future. Um, We talked a great deal about this last week, and just briefly, Guinness calls this generationalism. Instead of thinking in terms of biology, you you have one generation and then their children, their grandchildren. In the 20th century, we think in terms of culture or cultural ideas. And so at this present time, we have at least four or five generations living at the same time. We still have some baby boomers, We have Gen X, we have Gen Y, we have the Millennials. All these different people living at the same time and yet, in a sense, staying within their own boundaries and having total disregard for others. There's no sense of obligation to others. It's all about me right now. As someone said, what has the future ever done for me? No sense of the past no sense of the future. And in a real sense, a very warped view of the present. It's the tyranny of the now. And then thirdly, we saw the distorting of the future. This is what we saw in the first uh, sermon in the series on progressivism. Um, that things are just going to get better and better and better. Um, And anything that is new is seen as superior to anything that is old because you're on an upward trajectory. So anything that is in the past that is traditional, for example, is seen as wrong. Of the three of these, I would say it is the first one that has had the greatest impact on the church. I think all three have impacted the church. But really, when it comes to a distortion of the past, I think that really uh, that's has really affected the church. All of these start with a distorted understanding of time. And the question is, how did our civilization, how did our culture get to this point right now? And I would say it's because of the church. The church is at fault. The church has dropped the ball in this matter. We have failed to heed the command, redeeming the time. See, time is created by God. It is now fallen. It is both enslaved and enslaving because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And we have lost sight of the call to redeem time. Our view of time, I think, is much more chronological than it is covenantal. The source of meaning we take as coming from ourselves, that we define ourselves and others as whether or not we're successful, we're a failure happy, sad, Uh, we take that all on ourselves rather than giving it to God. God is the one who gives all things meaning and we have lost sight of this. So the distortions that I've talked about are not simply found in the world but are found in the church as well. We need to redeem the time and perhaps we need to redeem our vision of time as God intends so that we would be the people God wants us to be. I think it begins with the fact that the church has failed to see time as a gift. It's created by God. It is a gift. It's simply something that's there. It's like water for fish. We, we don't think about, oh, why is it this way? How, how did we get here? Why is there morning and evening? Why do we have minutes and all these different things? Uh, we have forgotten that God created time and it is a gift from him. So, for many people, creation, whether it be space or time, as, as creation is, for many Christians, it's like, no, 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 no. I want to be saved so I can get out of here. I can, I can escape God's creation. Creation is bad, if you wish, and I'm looking for that which is good, which is timelessness, eternity. You know, and yet somehow we forget that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The church, I think, has been marked by this idea of progress and progressivism, that we're just going to just keep getting better and better and better. On the other hand, you also have those who think things are just going to get worse and worse and worse because you have the two schools of thought with regard to the future, those who are optimistic, those who are pessimistic. But in both cases, the church has ceased to be biblical and has followed the lead of the culture around us. Many Christians throughout our history as a church have been tempted to reject time altogether. And so, rather than talking about time or days or anything, people talk about spiritual or mystical experiences that seem to be disconnected from time. I don't even know what time it was or what day it was, just having this wonderful experience. Many people want to escape the frustrations of time. And as a result, for many in the church... The meaning of time is simply what the culture says. They have no sense of what God says about his creation. For many people, like the rest of creation, it's seen as purely instrumental. That God made trees so we can build houses and make furniture. That's why God made trees. This idea that it's all for us to use. And that time is something that God gave us for us to use. Rather than seeing it as something that God has given us. So time became meaningless. And as a result, we began to make it symbolic of certain things. So certain days become holy days. They're special days because they symbolize certain things. Alexander Smeyman has written, For it is impossible to put Christ back into Christmas if he has not redeemed, that is, made meaningful, time itself we must understand therefore that the intensive almost pathological preoccupation of our modern world with time and its problem is rooted in the specifically Christian failure we have failed it wasn't always this way as God revealed himself to Abraham and then as he made a covenant uh, with Moses at Sinai um, The old way, the pagan way of thinking, the cyclical, the eternal return, whether it's reincarnation, just this cycle of things going over, it's it's smashed, it's broken. And now we begin to have a sense that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. God has a purpose for all of his creation. And that's why I've chosen as our text today Galatians chapter 4. If you look at Galatians chapter 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. We need to understand, and I, I want to make this clear, because if you Google it and they send you to Wikipedia, you'll have, I think, a rather distorted that the Babylonians created this whole vision of time. No. No. This is something that we see from the very beginning. Um, It is at Sinai, however, that these things begin to be spelled out. So you have the Sabbath day, for example, and then you have Pentecost and you have the various festivals that God sees time as linear as going somewhere. I could digress here and I will just very briefly and just talk about the concept of the week and how various explanations are given for the week. Um, Seven days, six days of creation, and the seventh was the Sabbath day, a day of rest. But other cultures did not follow this. Um, in in Rome, and we think in the Celtic calendar, pre-Christian Celtic, the week was eight days long. Uh, in Wales and other places, the week was nine days long. The Chinese, the ancient Chinese, had a ten-day week, as did the ancient Egyptians. It's not just the pre-modern people who had no contact with the Christian faith. When the French Revolution happened, they wanted to get rid of everything that was Christian. And interestingly enough, how do you do that? You begin by getting rid of the week. With the Sunday at the beginning, the first day of the week, you get rid of that. And so in the French Revolution, uh, they for nine and a half years, they had the 10-day week. Um, as time went on, they reverted back to the Christian Calendar. It is the Christian faith that makes it impossible to live with another calendar, if you wish. To live in the old way. To break the cycle of the eternal return. It is the Christian faith that announces, as we see in our text, that the fullness of time has come. That time has meaning. It isn't just this endless cycle that just goes over and over and seems to have no meaning. And in this sense, the Church has challenged the world's view of time. And so, in the Western world at least, but today because of technology, everyone is pretty much on, on, on page, on line with the seven-day week. And yet... Just as this is happening, the church turns its back on a Christian view of time, a covenantal vision of time. And how did the church do this? Well, first of all, people begin to speak more of eternity, abandoning the whole idea that this is God's good creation, that this is something that God made. They forget the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. And they begin to think in terms of symbols forgetting the reality that is behind those events and their timing. So we have to ask ourselves and one another, did Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rise from the dead on the first day of the week? Or does it even matter? Did he send the Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Or does it even matter? In other words, did Jesus enter time only for us to symbolize it with celebrations? We have Christmas. We have Easter. We have Pentecost. That the days themselves seem to have mean absolutely nothing. We've, we've turned our back on time having meaning. From the beginning of the church, Christians have had their own day. At Sinai, the Lord set apart the seventh day. It was the final day of creation. A day of rest for his people. A day for his people to learn how to trust him. They've been slaves for 400 years. You had to work every day if you were going to eat. But God says, no, work for six days and on the seventh day don't work. I'll take care of you. And manna was one of the ways in which they were to learn that. You collect manna for six days, but on the sixth day you get enough for the seventh day. I will take care of you. The Sabbath day was, in fact, to learn to trust God. In Exodus 20, by the way, it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. It is the longest of all the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it shall you, you, shall do, you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This should remind us of what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. The Sabbath is a day to rest, to in fact enjoy God's good creation. As one writer puts it, it is a Sabbath delight. Just just to kick back and look at what God has done. The Ten Commandments are given twice in the first five books of the Bible. Exodus chapter 20 and then in Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before they go into the promised land. Moses reminds them... Remember what God said? It's a little different. Rather than focusing on the creation week, that God created the world in six days and rested on the Sabbath, now he speaks of them being slaves. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. First of all, in Exodus it said God had blessed the Sabbath day. Sounds a lot better than God is in fact commanding you. But God is telling them, relax. I redeemed you from slavery. I will take care of you on that Sabbath day. Trust me. But the reality is that the world is in revolt against God. Redemption is necessary, and this is why, in our text, when the time had fully come, God sent His Son. In the way that He delivered Israel out of slavery, He delivers us from the bondage of sin. So it was on the first day of a new week that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's the day after the Sabbath. You have a week, Sabbath. And in the beginning of a new week, Jesus is raised from the dead. It became the day on which Christians met together. One Roman magistrate called it a fixed day. That These Christian people, they have a fixed day. There's a day on which they gather to worship. It's our day. Somehow we've lost sight of that. We have turned our backs on a covenantal view and we are now we're pagan, we're chronological snobs, if you wish. We that's what we do. We don't follow what Scripture tells us. If you have a mystical experience, it doesn't really matter what day it was on. If you're going to be saved, yeah, you don't need a calendar, because you're going to go to heaven anyway. But more than anything, this idea of holy versus profane sacred versus secular so this is the Lord's day this is a special day this is a holy day and then the rest of the day well you know that, that's, that's the regular world um, no yes Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week this did not transform the calendar in other words no not the Sabbath anymore now it's the first day of the week it's Sunday no, it transformed our view of time. It is through that one day, the first day of the week, that every day, all time is transformed. So, is Sunday the Lord's Day? Is Monday the Lord's Day? Yes. How about Tuesday? Yes. Is it a holy day? Yes. Jesus, in fact, has redeemed time. And what have we done? We're not redeeming the time the way we should. We're like, okay, Sunday, that's the Lord's day. We'll go to church and not the whole day, you know, maybe for an hour, hour and a half. Um, and that'll be special. That will be holy. But then the rest of the day, the rest of the week is just sort of profane. You know, we have to go to work and you have to shop and do your laundry and all that kind of stuff. Instead of recognizing that it is God who gives significance to every moment of every day. It is on the first day of the week when we gather that we remember that Jesus has come. That's our connection to the past. That Jesus will come. That's our connection to the future. So there is this sense of remembering and having expectation. And if we have expectation that Jesus is coming back, do you think Jesus is coming back on a Sunday? Is it going to be on like Easter or Christmas, some religious holiday? We don't know when he will come back. But he could come back any day because every day is in fact significant. Every day is a step closer. We are in expectation that the Lord Jesus will return. So Sunday is not a sacred day to be observed apart from all other days. Every day has significance. Let me just say parenthetically here that as your pastor, a part of me would love it if everyone, in fact, would see Sunday as special and would say, oh, it's Sunday, I need to go to church because it's the Lord's Day, this is something I need to do. We are to meet on the first day of the week, I'm convinced of that. But the reality is, every day is a gift from God. And we shouldn't somehow excuse our Monday through Saturday lives by, ooh, Sunday was special. It was a holy day and the rest is for me. No, every day is a gift from God. The church has failed to see this, has failed to see time as gift and thus has embraced a false view of time. You may remember in the second sermon in the series, I said that the chronological view, which is the modern view, is in fact the covenantal view with all the religion taken out. Get rid of the transcendent, get rid of God, all that stuff. And so Christians have very easily slid into the chronological view. They still pepper it with, oh, Sunday's the Lord's Day, we'll go to church and we'll do all this kind of stuff. But it's still basically a pagan view of time, a modern view of time. The difference between covenantal and chronological is who gives it meaning. And I think you can see that we've slipped into the chronological when we say, well, Sunday is the special day. Instead of recognizing that in the resurrection of Jesus, all days, in fact, are redeemed by his sacrifice. I mentioned this in the second sermon in the series, that in the chronological view, there are two factions. There are the optimist... um, who think that things are going to just get better and better and the pessimists who don't agree. You can find Christians in both camps, by the way. There's some Christians who are very optimistic and those who are very pessimistic. Uh, And they both justify it with certain verses that, you know, point to, yeah, things are going to get better and better and better. Or no, it's it's really just going down the toilet and we're just hanging on until Jesus comes back. We considered certain aspects of the chronological view and these have affected the church the first was precision and I don't want to go over everything I said there but this idea with the clock with the timer there are seconds um, minutes hours this is how we live our lives we define ourselves by our time and you've got to be on time the clock hasn't fed. in fact made this Possible, But as a result we come to the second characteristic there is pressure there is pressure you have to coordinate catch your plane on time catch the bus on time be to work on time if you want to see your doctor you have to be there on time for your appointment there is this pressure and it's all around us and the church has I think swallowed this hook, line and sinker we are, this, this drive for precision has resulted in great pressure. And why is there pressure? Because progress. We've got to make progress. We've got to keep going. We've got to keep pushing up and up and up. And we have forgotten that we are to redeem the time. From our text last Sunday, See then that you walk circumspectly, very carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of God is. And then that's in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 4. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. It's a threefold progression. How you live. The third part is preaching the truth. In the middle on both is redeeming the time. It's the fulcrum. It's the pivot point. This is what is to guide our lives as God's people. And as I said, I think the church has completely lost sight of this. I think we don't really think about time. We simply imbibe what the culture around us says. And we've lost something very important. Okay, so how do we redeem the time? How do we do that? Well, the Lord willing, in two Sundays, when I next speak, we will look at that. Uh, Tom will be speaking next Sunday. But in the meantime, I want us to consider the fact that we have, in fact, embraced a modern view of time We've rejected a biblical view of time. But we've rationalized it in our head because we make certain days special. Instead of recognizing that all of time is a gift. All of time is a gift. Let's pray together. Father, Seems a bit strange to be spending so much time talking about time. It'd almost be as if we did a series of sermons on air or water for the things that are around us all the time that we take for granted. But if in fact there was a problem of air pollution, then we would say something needs to be done. We're called to take care of God's creation. If rivers become polluted, we have to do something. In the same way our vision of time has become distorted, we've lost sight of the call to redeem the time. Open our eyes. Speak to our hearts. Help us to see how much we have lost. Jesus came to redeem time and somehow we've given it away. May your spirit speak to our hearts. Give us understanding. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. For those that will be traveling this week, we pray for safety. That by your grace, you would bring us back together next Sunday. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.